Hi, and welcome back to Brentwood Stories. On today's episode, me and Peter welcome back one of our first guests of the podcast, Dr. Zebulon Miletsky, professor of Africana Studies at Stony Brook University. Me and Peter had the privilege of listening in on a fascinating and comprehensive conversation featuring Zebulon and a panel of his graduate students entitled The Black Family and the American Dream. Along with Zebulon, we welcome panelists Yesenia Torres, William Mack, and Vincent Fraser. Again, apologies for the drops in audio. This was unfortunately due to continued connection issues. Greetings, good evening, and welcome. My name is Dr. Zebulon Maletsky, and I'm very pleased this evening to uh, Brentwood Public Library's podcast. We have three very special guests who I'll talk about in a moment. We're all graduate students uh, working in the uh, working very hard in the and laboring in the vineyards of academia, um, in the libraries and so on. And they'll talk about some of their work in just a moment. But tonight uh, we want to do something to talk about some of the inequalities that we see in Long Island, in places like Brentwood and Rockville Center, uh, on the west west end, uh, the east end. Uh, uh, all you know, and everything in between. We're talking tonight about Long Island communities who have taken uh, uh, certain, you know, philosophies and sort of uh, directives that come out of the Black Power movement and come out of a longer tradition that we're going to be talking tonight of Black nationalism. Uh, I think of the uh, uh, Africana Studies Department in Nassau Community College. A lot of um, comrades and colleagues there who have worked to basically protect their black their Africana Studies Department and 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 in the name of Black Studies, uh, I think of my own department, uh, Africana Studies at Stony Brook University, named after Richard B. Moore, uh, a Barbadian uh, uh, by birth uh, or Bayesian, if you like, um, who who. Uh, established himself in Harlem uh, uh, in the uh, uh, period that, you know, in the early periods of the 1930s, 40s. And we have uh, the inheritors of his library collection donated by his wife, a revolutionary as well in the cause, a well-known one. And so we'll be talking about some of that. They come out of the Black nationalism, something called Pan-Africanism. You may remember Bob Marley's song, Africa Unite. you know, talking about the positives of the diaspora connecting. So today we're talking about the New York diaspora, if you will, uh, Harlem, uh, home of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, Brentwood, home of uh, EPMD, the rap group, uh, uh, Paris Smith, and a lot of other names. Uh, We're talking about Long Island, home of Chuck D, home of Eddie Murphy, uh, home of so many different uh, people who uh, are in their own ways, in their music, in their art, in their collections, and you know who you are, bibliophiles around Long Island. Uh, we're talking to them tonight. So uh, uh, my guests will join me to talk about the, some, of the, some of those issues and also about Black families, right? The theme of Black History Month this year set by the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, ASALA, as it's known, uh, this year is the Black family, identity, 
represent diversity and represent excuse me representation identity diversity and representation and so my guests will 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 talk tonight a little bit about some of you know any one of those issues black families traveling to long island queens uh, moving out onto the island in the 70s and 80s and some of the some of the showdowns that take place as a result of exercising that fundamental right black families living anywhere they choose to live and so we're thankful to brentwood public library we're thankful to newsday who advertised this event and we thank you our listeners for joining us and so uh at this point i'm going to uh, ask my panelists to uh starting with Jesenia Torres uh, to unmute herself and uh, and tell us a little bit about your your work and uh, how it relates to this topic. Okay, hi everybody. Um, so my name is Jesenia Torres. I'm a first year master's student in the Women's Gender and Sexuality um, Studies Department. And um, my research is focusing on housing, housing policy, um, housing insecurity. And I used to work as a caseworker briefly. And from that experience, I decided that I wanted to look into um, abolishing current shelter practices, um, specifically for people of color and LGBTQ plus people. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Thank you. Thank you, wonderful. and. Uh... Uh, it's a pleasure to have you joining us this evening. So uh, we're going to move, move right along to uh, Will Mack, one Will Mack, who has written about some of these issues and uh, will be also joining us tonight. Uh, he's a doctoral student in history uh, at Stony Brook University. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, uh, yeah thank you. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm a, a doctoral student in history. My interests are in race, capitalism, and the carceral state or policing, mass incarceration. Um, I've written on, done some writing on um, redlining on Long Island in 2019, and also uh, labor and racial capitalism in the 1930s on Long Island with black laborers who migrated from the South and were underpaid um, in order to lower wages for uh, other workers in the area. Um, and right now my, my, my dissertation is gonna focus on Haitian immigrants and their interactions with policing, uh, immigrant detention and other issues of labor. So thank you for having me. That's wonderful. Yeah, very important to remember that um, there are black blue collar workers as well, right? Um, the labor question is critical of course and one that has been uh, uh, fumbled in so many ways, and um, that's a very important topic. And and so last, but certainly not least, uh, I want to bring to our uh, uh, forum a, 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 a fighter for the cause, a brother who has uh, been involved in Black Power causes himself, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you need to know a name called Vincent Frazier. Uh, if you're from Harlem, you may know that name. Uh, if you if you know Harlem, you know it's. We talked of it last class. Uh, we speak of it often, but it's an intellectual space. It's still that lingering Harlem Renaissance uh, tinge to it. Uh, a lot of intellectuals and a lot of lovers of books and reading, 
and that goes for everybody, all classes. It's an amazing space, uh, but also one that has been fraught with problems of gentrification and change. So I bring to you the stage at this time, Vincent Frazier, will you please unmute yourself and tell the people uh, some of the work you've done. Oh, good evening, I'm Bernie Fraser. Um, thanks for the big buildup. <laughs> well, anyway, I was born in Harlem, in Harlem Hospital many years ago, and uh, I was raised in Harlem. And uh, recently I went back to Harlem, to 135th Street and uh, 8th Avenue, and I was lost. I didn't know where I was at. I was like, the neighborhood has changed. Women are walking around, <laughs> women are walking around in business suits and pushing baby carriages and uh, when I was coming up, you know, you watched your back. <laughs> you know, you watched yeah. your back. <laughs> yeah, that's you want to be in Father 135th Street around there. But things have changed. Um, at present, um, I, I have earned two master's degrees from Queens College. One is in history and one is in social sciences. I'm trying to get into a, well, I've applied for the PhD program at Stony Brook, waiting for an answer. And, uh, see what happens with that. But my interest right now over the last year or two has been in black female intellectuals and uh, how they have been marginalized to the point of not even being spoken, speaking of people like uh, Ella Baker or, or uh, Paulie Murphy, Paulie, Paulie Murray, people like that, you know, who, who were part of the uh, civil rights movement and women's rights movements and but it's been, the history of these people has been literally wiped off the place, the place of the earth. So right now, that's my interest right now. Uh, I've studied, I live in, I don't know anything about Long Island itself, but I, I live in, a, in a Southeast Queens, a place called Locust Manor. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I have and studied this area uh, about the first black, black uh, public school being, being on Douglas Avenue in Queens, New York, about the first black community on Douglas Avenue in Queens, New York, about Grace Church and how uh, it, uh, at one point, the church said it, if you were a Christian, you could be free. But Grace Church on Parsons Avenue and, uh, and uh, Jamaica Avenue said, no, you're still a slave. So. Uh, that's my interest right now. My, my interest is in female history, black, black intellectual female history, and I'm going in that direction. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a lot. And you can, as you can see, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, this man, uh, uh, you know, uh, having lived through some of the stuff, you know, brings a different perspective. And that, and, and, and that, that, that perspective on Queens is going to be valuable to our discussion later. Let's jump right into it. Um, you know, and let's start with some of the stuff we we read and looked at, so that folks know some of the get a sense of what we do in Africana studies. Um, and tonight, uh, we're you know taking a look at um, some of the readings that you know really do kind of hold together the fabric. And we're just going to spend the first portion on this. But uh, you know, what do you make of this effort? What do you make of Pan-Africanism? Uh, that, that song that I was talking about, Africa Unite, you know, a lot of people don't realize some of the lyrics in there are Marcus Garvey's speeches. Um, Africa Unite. So 
uh, uh, check out that uh, song on Spotify or on uh, Apple, both of which this podcast is available on. Thank you for just joining us. So, so go ahead and, and talk to us a little bit about the readings. Who wants to jump in first on, on, on this? And we're going to try to remind our audience, you know, what it is, uh, remembering that this is audio only and that uh, our folks may not know, you know, what, what uh, some of the things that a graduate class in Africana studies at Stony Brook University uh, is reading, you know, uh, are reading and looking at. And let me tell, tell the listeners a little bit about our class before we do that. Um, you know, this course is a course on uh, the Black Power Movement. Uh, all of our panelists are, uh, you know, members of the course in one form or another. And the purpose is to offer an appraisal of the Black Power Movement, which has not been generally available to students of 1960s upheavals in American life. And so, so many of these, you know, some of these housing products, some of these places that, you know, come out of grassroots organizing, uh, community-based organizations that come out, you know, after the breakfast programs, after the Panthers, right? A lot of them become some of the things that like uh, Vincent was talking about, you know, uh, 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 gathered in a church, remembering also that the young lords, uh, young lords took over, took over and emancipated uh, churches. Uh, you know, those are serve as sort of like landmarks for us. Uh, I know in my own work on Boston, tracking the movement of the black church from Beacon Hill, which was one of the original communities in which African-Americans lived. Uh, but as African-Americans begin to move outward and into the so-called neighborhoods like Mattapan, Rock, Lower Roxbury, and places like that, this is, this is Boston, Massachusetts, but very similar uh, case happening um, in New York and Queens. Um, you know, Vincent, let me ask you, like, how does, you know, are some of are these readings on the Bandung Conference, Malcolm X often talked about the Bandung Conference in 1955. This was a, a very unique uh, uh, opportunity to try to bring together the Afro-Asian world, uh, Malcolm and other Black nationalists and practitioners of Pan-Africanism. Remember, Malcolm does a lot of his work in the 50s, right? He, you know, in the early 60s, he was turning that corner. And by, you know, by 65, uh, the year of our Lord, 1965, we lost Malcolm X. So, so, um, you know, why, why did Malcolm talk about the Bandung Conference? Why was it important to him? How does it connect to the readings, Vincent? How do you frame that for us and get us started? I'm going to say, honestly, that's next week's reading, <laughs> as far as I know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Very so I really, tricky, I really sir. Very to, I really didn't get to that part, you know? Well, go ahead and bless us then with some... But what some I, I'd like to talk about, though, is, is, uh, is Marcus Gravi a little bit, if possible. Yes, sir. And that was that was an important movement. Um, and one part of the reading, they were talking about uh, his his Universal Negro Improvement Agency Association being being a, a militant group. And I didn't see it that way as a militant group, you know, because they were more interested in in, in uh, capitalism and and making money and like pride than being a militant group. So I really I don't I don't agree with the reading saying that he he was a militant group. Okay, that's, that's, that relates to something, everybody, that we had spoken about last class, how Marcus Garvey's mighty, up ye mighty race, right, 
how Marcus Garvey's call, his clarion call, which was so important enough that Bob Marley made it, you know, made it part of his lyrics and understanding and a connection that goes all the way through Rastafarianism and 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 a a, a sort of Ethiopian worldview. Uh, 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 help us. What do we need to know about this, Willie? Uh, excuse me, Will Mack. Uh, yeah, no, I had um, I had a, a couple of things I wanted to, 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 to chime in about. Um, you know, reconstruction, post-slavery, um, post-emancipation. Um, one of the things that you know we we you know we talk about history, our our, our level, our one our one hundred class, you know, for our first year history students, um, is the centrality of the church in Black communities, particularly during the Reconstruction era. You know when freedmen were leaving the plantations and going out looking for family, looking for, you know, friends that they have lost through slavery that were sold off and how important the church was as like this kind of beacon in terms of just really unifying these newly freed, um, formerly enslaved people that had nothing else in the world at that point. Because if you're familiar with U.S. history and the history of slavery and emancipation, when slaves were, were, were freed, they were left, you know, there was talk about 40 acres and the mule and reparations at that time, but they were essentially left with nothing. You know, they were left as on their own. And, and if you go through the WPA, the, the um, slave narratives uh, in the Smithsonian, I believe it is, um, you can go and you see these interviews by these former slaves that they were done in the, in the 1930s. And they talk about how, you know, at the end of slavery, they were left on their own. You know, they... You know, sometimes some of them would even say, well, I wish I still had my, 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 my master because at least I had clothing and I was secure in my food, even though, you know, obviously the horrors of slavery and, and they're very clear about that, the horrors of, the, of slavery, but also there's this fact that they're, you know, put out there just to kind of be like, okay, you know, you're, now you can go sell, buy and sell your, your, your labor as anyone else can. Um, and so the church really kind of functions as like this draw that brought people together, religion in general. And, you know, a lot of these narratives talk about, you know, religion and God and, and all these kind of things um, that really gave them hope, you know, as they entered really a new era in their lives as freed, freedmen. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I agree about the, the slavery part. Also, I thought about Malcolm X, who, um, I don't know if you, you mentioned he was, his assassination was, I think, 50 years yesterday. No, not 50 years, was it? 1965. So it was yesterday was the anniversary of it. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 Um, Malcolm X. I mean, I, you know, again, I mean, this is something that we talk about in our, our U.S. Our US History 101 class. You always bring in Mar Malcolm X autobiography, autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley. Um, yes. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating. It's such an amazing read. I think, you know, Malcolm X is someone that I, I, I wish um you know had, was, was given more agency in mainstream u.s history because you know his evolution as a as a, not just as a, a an activist but as a thinker you know what i mean um yeah as someone that grew he evolved he came from his father was a minister in, in marcus garvey's um uh united yeah. improvement association and was killed, he was run down by Knight Riders, like a, kind of like the Ku Klux Klan, but they were called Knight Riders in the Midwest. I forget, I think 
they're outside of maybe uh, I forget exactly where they where he lived when he was a child, somewhere in the Midwest, St. Louis, somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, Nebraska. I'm not sure. Omaha. Yeah. Omaha. Omaha. Thank you. Yeah, Nebraska, Omaha. Um, and he saw that. He saw his father killed. Um, so, but he was he kind of had that legacy. He came from that legacy of Marcus Garvey, the nationalism, black nationalism, um, pan Africanism of going back to Africa and finding their um, you know roots um, as African people. Um, but then also his evolution from becoming a uh, you know petty criminal, um, you know, to being in uh, being in prison and, and encountering the nation of Islam, um, and becoming you know developing this level of discipline and study and seeking. You know, he had this real kind of seeking spirit, um, trying to find truth. You know, and, and trying to find a way to emancipate you know the black condition in the United States. Um, and then his evolution from that, when you started to see the contradictions and, you know, the, the uh, yeah, the contradictions with the nation of Islam and taking that and still looking even further, you know, and, and looking towards, you know, going out to the Middle East and recognizing the interracial um, unity of what you saw in, in Mecca, you know, and then bringing that back here and then even, you know, even further you know, uniting with, you know, these third world leaders such as uh, Fidel Castro, um, Nasser of, of Egypt, you know, and inviting them to Harlem and saying, you know, look, you know, our struggle is, our struggle is, is linked, you know, it's, it's the struggle against imperialism, American imperialism, and really a white idea of white supremacy, which doesn't necessarily mean, because we talk about the Bandung Conference, it makes me think of uh, um, other things like that came out of that, force of, of education among Afro and, and Afro-Asian people and really all people, all colonized people around the world. And they, they talked about white supremacy and colonialism, but it was a, wasn't necessarily a white supremacy as in white skin. It was more of a white in terms of ideas of power over colored people in terms of their weakness and their subservience to that power. Um, so I thought Malcolm X, you know, to, to articulate that and to embrace that as one of the First real African American woman well, wasn't the first. I mean, Du Bois was was you know. His That's dad, right. That's but, right. Yeah, so to bring that in at a time and use his platform to really ignite the idea within the broader Black Power, emerging Black Power, civil rights movement, you know, Black liberation movement of the '50s and '60s, um, while all these African countries, all these Asian countries, were going through their own colonial struggles and kind of linking that to the African American struggle here in the United States. I mean, it's a really powerful, powerful thing. I. My, I always, and I know everyone says this, I mean, can you imagine if he was, was able to live longer and really develop his right. thinking and see where that would go? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about that, with that. You know, uh, uh, I think of Peniel Joseph's new book, The Sword of the Shield. Uh, uh, shout out to, uh, to, to Dr. Peniel Joseph, who's, uh, you know, doing some good work to, on this. And a Stony Brook University alum and taught at Stony Brook, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, it, your question and, and the points you're raising bring up a lot of thoughts. Uh, you relate, you know, and, 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 you know, Malcolm X is theoretician, right? You know, uh, maybe our listeners could check out. Um, uh, uh, it's my YouTube channel, but if you type in Malcolm X, the theoretician, we never knew uh, it will come up. And it was a discussion with uh, William Strickland, known uh, as Bill Strickland, uh, uh, one time head of the Northern Student Movement, 
uh, uh, involved at the Institute of Black Arts, uh, Institute for the Black World, excuse me, uh, in Atlanta, um, and uh, came to UMass Amherst and became a college professor, uh, but grew up with Malcolm, knowing Malcolm had connections and associations, they were different ages, and uh, he was a consultant for Malcolm X Make It Plain. Um, and, and, you know, he's a good embodiment of the kind of thinking, Will, that you're talking about um, in the sense that he lays that out as well and really defends Malcolm's legacy, went hard after the um, notorious, uh, but you had to buy it and read it, uh, uh, the late uh, departed uh, Dr. Manning Marable's uh, book on Malcolm. Um, uh, I wanted to say one, one thing, please. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Vincent. And yeah, I was just uh, going to say, Mal Malcolm, Malcolm lived in Queens. Malcolm, yeah, uh, the house that got bombed was in the one in Queens. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, Malcolm, the book by Alex Haley doesn't doesn't do justice to Malcolm X because um, Haley was a was a military man, and he and he viewed Malcolm as a as a as a seditionist, <laughs> you know, as a rebel. So he, he wasn't really into Malcolm. The book that I read, oh. I read this book here. This is the one that I read by by uh, Marble Manning, yeah. and this one tells a different story than the one that uh that uh Ma Malcolm X: A Life of Reinvention. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just for yeah, the listening this, audience, tells a different <laughs> different story about Malcolm than the one that Alex Haley wrote. And uh, he was a he was a, a he was a great man. He went he went through a lot in his life. You know, he he, he was out there and he and he, and he grew. And I, yeah, and I, and I, and I like that. But would we know the name Malcolm X had it not been for Alex Haley, though? You know, I mean, he 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 was a writer first and foremost. I think you're right about that. He had written some for Playboy, uh, Playboy interviews. He had written for Reader's Digest. He he wrote for magazines you didn't normally find. Like, yeah, he definitely wasn't a nationalist by any means. Uh, but but saw a redeeming quality in a Malcolm X and got really, really connected with him. I mean, do you is your beef more with Manning's book? A no, Life it's, it's, it's 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 uh, it's uh, it's uh, with uh, Alex Haley's book, actually. OK, from, OK, from fair his, enough. <laughs> you know, he said he introduced Malcolm to the, to the public. But he wasn't yeah. telling the truth. He was telling a, a slanted type view of like, that's you know, true. That's you know, true, and especially with regard to femininity issues, there's issues about, and, and Manning's book raises this uh, in terms of uh, uh, even homophobia and that kind yeah. of thing is is, is yeah. in there in, in some very interesting ways. I mean, I think I think it, I think if I understand the point, and I agree with this part of it, it does need to be made clear to folks that it's an as told to book, right? As told to Alex Haley, yeah. and really Alex Haley is a writer. He's the writer. But he really kept faith, it turns out. When we look at the interviews that are still in existence, transcripts and stuff, really did keep faith with what Malcolm told him. Manny Marable's making the, the point that we don't have, don't treat that as a historical auto, a biopic, autobiography, right, of, of Malcolm, because it's a literary feat yeah. done by a very gifted writer. Now, Roots is a different question because he goes oh and does God. the research. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> let me let me i want to though because you got to talk about whatever you want to talk about but we also got to fit in either from 
either talking about uh, about gender. Uh, uh, we want to make sure to include that by just including your voice at this point. Uh, 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 what, whatever you end up, what do you think, Yesenia? I see you have your hand up. What are you thinking here? What do you want to say? Um, well, first, I, I did write some notes um, based off the readings about uh, gender in particular with, um, let me see here, with um, which George Shepherson's uh, notes on Negro American influences on the emergence of African nationalism. And there was a portion in which he made a small note where he talks about um, Pan-African re rehabilitation um, that dates back to the Manchester Congress of 1945 and mentioned Garvey's second wife. And it was just a brief mention, it was no name. And I just thought it was very interesting that majority of the text, whether it was this particular text or the other text um, that we also read was a lot of naming of uh, different men that had so much influence on Pan-Africanism, on African nationalism. And so um, I thought it interesting that in this one particular sentence, she did not receive a name. And so I looked her up, right. and so her name is Amy Jacquees uh, Garvey, and I thought it was really, it made me start to think about um, what role did she play, and then I learned that um, she, when Garvey was arrested, was imprisoned, that she did, um, was like the de facto leader, and was the spokesperson and archivist, and, um, and did many things, I guess, during the year between 1925 and 1926, when they uh, voted for a new president. Right. for the UNIA. And so I thought that was very interesting and it raised questions for me as to what more roles or what more influence would there have been in this space had they had people of that time taken um, a chance to look towards Black women in their own communities, in their own space, whether it's their wives, sisters, mothers, and so on, how would this movement move forward more so if they had a voice in that space? Um, and I know that there are a lot of women that were in the UNIA that did have a lot of um, influence, but in their own spaces, it was very like just the woman space. Let's just talk strictly to women. It wasn't very unifying in a way to me. That's what it seemed. Um, and another thing right. that I wanted to bring up, kind of going a little bit further back um, to Will's statement um, that about Christianity, that was something that I, I know I kind of mentioned it in the last class a little bit, um, but I thought it really interesting that a lot of the Back to Africa movement involved the missionaries and involved the churches. And I do understand that that is a space for hope for Black people, but I'm always interested in as to why that's um, a space or a tool to use to go back to Africa when Christianity itself is the tool of colonization. So I always wonder how that, if people were aware of that at that time and how does that play out? Yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think to answer it, we got to go back, you know, to some to a, a probably a little bit back a little bit further, um, and uh, uh, and talk about you know some of those first out migrations. Talk about Liberia, the use of Black Christianity, yes, of Black missionaries um, who volunteer. Uh, to go abroad and to bring Christianity and do so in a way that one might that all of that attend that is attendant upon all of those things, as you mentioned, you know, as a tool uh, in a sense. But the, here's a here's a tool of a black imperialism, if you will, a black Christianity, and 
if Marcus Garvey, you know, uh, hadn't gotten deported uh, uh, and 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 basically nabbed for mail fraud, uh, uh, you know, un, un illegally, okay? Because here's the beginning of COINTELPRO, and people need to look up, you know, counterintelligence program, the COINTEL, known as COINTELPRO. Uh, this is the beginning of it because J. Edgar Hoover, of a young J. Edgar Hoover, is the one who actually arranges for the deportation itself. Uh, and that is the investigation that led to the accusation of mail fraud. Uh, young J. Edgar Hoover cut his teeth on a Marcus Garvey before he, you know, uh, would come to be known for wiretaps and all kinds of unconstitutional and illegal uh, 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 you know, ways of, 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 of monitoring and so forth. Um, we haven't seen, hadn't, didn't see the last of it. The Patriot Act and other world events gives the government, you know, chance to enhance its, you know, uh, we got to talk. So, so, so you brought up a lot of important things in the church, uh, right? An imperfect vessel uh, in and of itself. And so we're dealing with that question, you know, even now. I think the civil rights movement is very clear to people that. It began in churches, people like Hazel Dukes uh, in Long Island, who uh, was, you know, becomes a major name and figure in terms of the civil rights years, the freedom movement years, um, uh, and a lot of other groups, the AME churches, and uh, 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 Vincent mentioned the church in Queens. Um, but yes, yeah, so, 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 but without getting, you know, sort of church is church and church is there. Um, some people have used it in revolutionary and counter-capitalist, anti-capitalist ways, like the Young Lords, as I mentioned, uh, liberating the church for them and their struggle. They identified, I think they identified Catholicism in some sense as a uh, uh, part of the threat, but then turned it into part of the solution in a way that was reminiscent of liberation theology, both black and, you know, and, and liberation theology uh, in Latin America. Think of Oscar Romero, think of the Jesuits, uh, think of some of those struggles. So, so um, where does that put us? I mean, I think that um, you bring up a good point. I Amy, Amy Jack, Jack Scarby, uh, uh, is, you know, is a longtime associate. Uh, he had, you know, uh, I believe it was two Amy's. And one he married and one he didn't. Um, so there's that kind of connection. The, the story of black women in the UNIA and black nationalism is in a great book by Keisha Blaine called Set the World on Fire. So um, without getting lost in the sauce and, and, and in that part of the discussion, you know, how does that bolt, bolt down, you know, uh, uh, for us, you know, Harlem has is, is become an example of the preeminent example of gentrification, right? Remembering that with the process of gentrification, this gets forgotten very often, but with the progress, with the process of gentrification, you must, must lower the value first, right? Uh, an area has to be underdeveloped first. It has to go through that phase, right? It has to go from being something rich, a historically black place that you know valued things in ways that were not just monetary, that built it light, its life around churches like the Abyssinian Baptist Church and others, so many others. Okay, um, uh, you got other things like the Nation of Islam and other strains of various and Rastafarianisms and other other you know approaches to this that are that are considered religious, right? So so. Um, 
you know, where does where does that where does that put us uh, with the under, you know, the the first the historical richness? We see that pattern. You see that in Bedford Stuyvesant. You see that in other places in Long Island as well. It's a little different. But let's deal with Queens and Brooklyn and Harlem for a moment, uh, and the Bronx to some extent, um, and and Staten Island, all the boroughs, right? Um, Let's deal with that question. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a couple of things I, I you brought up. I wanted to I wanted to touch upon. I thought it was really interesting. Um, when I was taking a step back, the the Peniel Joseph book, another great book that he wrote, um, which really deals a lot centers the Black Power movement a lot around Malcolm X, is Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, which came out a few years ago. Um, and I, I just, that's where I'm talking about him earlier. I just mentioned. I just thought that might be interesting. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and 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 um, in terms of churches, you know, I, I, I recently just doing some research on um, you know radicalism in Harlem in the 1920s, 1930s, um, and you know particularly within labor unions, um, CIO, um, the Communist Party, and it's and how much it became infused within um, the, the, the 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 yeah the Black Liberation Movement in, in Harlem in the 20s and 30s. And one of the things that they they use, and you would, you know, I, I was surprised when I read this, and I read this in in the paper in the Daily Worker and the New York Times, is they would use churches, this, the Communist Party would use churches to meet with the community, which is kind of, you know, communism, Marxism, you know, opium of the masses, you know, anti-religion. Um, but then at the same time, they're recognizing there's this, this, you know, there's a huge, I don't want to say huge, but there was a within the Harlem Renaissance, there was a very strong radical left kind of movement. There were a lot of, you know, African-Americans, black Americans, such as Langston Hughes, um, and I'm, I'm pulling blanks off the top of my head at the moment, but they traveled to, to Moscow to learn about, you know, the Soviet Union, to understand right. its anti-racism, because, you know, there were people going back to, you know, Du Bois and his era, there was a whole conversation around the idea of the, the, idea of the Russian Revolution and what it meant for, you know, black uh, liberation or equality, racial equality. Um, but by 1930s, that was pretty. They were pretty solid in in in, in Harlem, and particularly in the Harlem Renaissance. A lot of the people that I met, again, I mentioned you. I'm trying to think of some other names. I'll have to look them up and get back in, to you. In other eras, Richard Wright. Richard uh, Wright. Robeson, sure. Uh, well, I'm thinking of one. I'm thinking of uh, uh, someone particular, which I'm calling. I'm pulling a blank on. But the point is, they they would meet and discuss these kind of, you know, more radical critiques of capitalism. But they would do it within the confines of a church in Harlem, um, because that's what we use as a community center. That's where people met, people talked. As we said, going back to, you know, the Reconstruction period, that was the center in a lot of ways of the Black community, particularly in the South. But then you have the migration of African-Americans to the North in the 19 teens, um, they bring those traditions with them up into Harlem, up into, you know, where the church becomes a center of, of, of a lot of community activism, a lot of community discussion. Um, and I also thought it was interesting, you know, talking about the young Lords taking over a church when they, they um, you know, when they, what was it, 1970, 1971 um, on 111th street, uh, I thought that was interesting because, well, what does that have to do? Why would they focus on a church? Why would they look at, you know, are they targeting Catholicism? And then that makes me think also about the more radical element of the, 
the Panther Party, they're Marxist in their theology and their ways right. of thinking. So, you know, I, I, I just, I thought that was really interesting, the church you know, dialogue, what's going on there? Why would they, what, does, did that really mean anything for them or was it just happens? And I think it was just, they, they called it the people's church. So I, I think from what I understand, right. it was just there. That's where they were, you know, that was a place where they knew they could meet, they could take over. Um, they took it over after Julio Roldan was 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 murdered in the New York City jails, um, who was an activist and a young lord. Um, mm -hmm. And they came with guns, they're ready to fight the police, and they marched into a church with with the casket, Julio's casket, two thousand people, and they just proclaimed it the People's Church, took it over. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. It's very yeah. yeah. I just I think that I just that point that Yesenia brought up and that you, you brought up yourself, Zebulon, about the church and you know, what, what did that really mean for them? That's, that's an interesting question. I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth exploring. I mean, and shout out to Chacha Jimenez, Chacha Jimenez, who um, is actually one of the, he's really the founder of the Young Lords uh, out of Chicago. It's kind of a complicated, interesting story. There's a major Puerto Rican population in Chicago, about half these days, about half Puerto Rican, half Mexican, Humboldt Park. Um, that's important. Um, that's important. The Puerto Rican diaspora. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, boy, they really knew, you know, in terms of political theater, nobody ever did it better. Um, and they did a lot of that stuff. They're in a, they're a 70s movement. They're more than a 60s movement, per se, and as you pointed out. And uh, that's that's really, really important. I mean, they, you know, they become, I think, I think here in New York, uh, a you know, a really important kind of uh, uh, crucible in terms of the New York struggle, right? The New York struggles, you know, if there is a struggle, which we know there, there is, it's a, an anti-capitalist struggle in so many ways, right? And that's supported by, you know, you have uh, uh, the Jewish population, a large, a large part of the, not everybody, but many Jew, you know, part of the Jewish population, uh, red diaper babies as so-called, um, you know, some of the people who are going to be in the baby boomer generation who were involved in the, you know, some SDS and, and when it went underground and some of those radical leftist movements. Um, uh, Angela Davis is a black communist. That's that's an important, you know, and, and, and so some of this problem is we tend to uh, kind of blur it. And that's one of the things we're trying to do in this class is is to tease out. You know, it's not black power is not a big blur. There's many different ways. There's a manual. Uh, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton like pretty much put it together, right? And if you read it, you know, it allows for a wide range of things that could be interpreted as Black Power. Black Power is just every bit as much about what the Panthers or other, you know, popularized, more popularized groups were doing as it is about building some things in the community. Don't forget the Black Panthers also had their breakfast programs uh, and really start the, the neighborhood health clinic movement. That was the, an idea that they did in Boston. I know, I know, I know less about it in New York, but in Boston, I know that the you know some of the some of the largest health clinics. I'm trying to, I had just had the name and then it just escaped me. But uh, Dimmick, I want to say, yeah, Dimmick, Community Health, and a few others that I think come out of you know some of those things the Black Panthers did. They were doing uh, testing of sickle cell. They were you know they 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 so-called liber you know the the young lords liberated like you know things like that so they could go around like helping people the struggle is against rats the struggle is against rodents the struggle is against high rents the struggle is against oppressive landlords the struggle is against slums 
Uh, it's poverty. It's about it's about not getting knifed in the hallway more so than a ideological kind of like discussion about democracy and so forth that the Southern, the more heroic Southern movement, as we've talked about in class, represented. And then you have a Hazel Dukes. You have, you know, names that come out of the New York uh, uh, region. You know, you, 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 uh, uh, you have a lot of people who come out of the, you know, what does struggle mean in the 80s and 90s? Um, after integration, so-called after uh, uh, the dream is supposed to be made real, getting into our discussion of the American dream, um, Black families do move out to the Queens and Long Island. Uh, they do stake that claim and they don't shudder from that fear of violence, of threatened violence, which happened, death threats uh, for moving into white neighborhoods. Uh, I think of, I think, I believe it's called Rosedale, if I'm not saying that wrong, uh, uh, where you had a major showdown with some black teenagers, that, a film that just recently in the last few years became available. The New York Times had a piece on it. Uh, you should, I would encourage people to search that. I hope I'm saying that right. Rosedale, uh, where you really, you know, where you really see it, right? Um, you know, go home, you know, you don't belong here. Coming back to our discussion, who is an American? Uh, and, and that kind of thing. Don't forget the squad, right? Go go back to your country. It's effective because people still don't see black people as American, right? Uh, uh, so, so what? talk to us about in the last few minutes here, what can we say? And, and before we will give everyone a chance to sort of final wrap up, what can we say about the the struggle in terms of, and what is the struggle? Is, is, it, is it a real struggle uh, if, to have a color TV in a few rooms? people are supposed to feel sympathy this kind of middle class struggle as we talk about capitalism and labor and all that stuff how do we sort that out oh, I'll, I'll give it a shot yeah i mean um you know i think about you know the the, the post you know civil rights era post um black power era the 70s 80s 90s um and there's a really good book that I, I like um, by the scholar um, Kianga Yamada Taylor, hashtag Black Lives Matter, the Black Liberation. Um, and she takes a very, a very um, critical um, view on the post-civil rights or, you know, I guess, Black leadership um, and capitalism. And Right. And, you know, even Obama's, Obama's, Barack Obama's center to her. Oh, especially Obama, right? <laughs> yeah. right. We can't leave, we can't leave. <laughs> we can't talk Without about apology, it. yeah. <laughs> um, and she's very critical, very critical of Obama and, and this idea of a uh, assimilationist into the capitalist middle class and, and then also um, within um, this post-racial idea of post-racialism in the United States. And what I liked about her book, why I think she, you know, she does in a lot of good ways is really connects the Black Lives Matters movement of today to the Black Power movement of the 1960s. Um, mm. Within a different kind of context in the sense, you know, obviously you can't compare the 60s to the 2000, you know, it's, it's not the same, but it is the same. You know, it is the same in the sense of the class disparities, you know, the racism, and we see the racism, I mean, it's, it's, more in our faces is so obvious these days with what happened at the Capitol um, a few weeks ago over right. the summer with the uprisings around the, the country, um, you know, and the reaction and the response from the state, from the, you know, government leaders 
um, in terms of how they deal with these things. You know, Black Lives, some people say Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. Black Lives Matter is this, is this. Meanwhile, you have, you know, white militias storming the Capitol and, you know, really nothing being done about it, nothing in the same way. Or, you know, the, the former president saying, you know, there's, there's good people on both sides. Um, so I think she's, she's drawing those two connections, but then she's also adding the, the post-2008 um, era recession, you know, the bubble bursting and the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yes. Recognition that, you know, it's not just Black people and people of color um, that are struggling so much now to get, you know, ahead, get, see this American dream, but it's also including, you know, white middle-class kids who, you know, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, would have what's what one economist calls patrimonial middle class or patrimonial wealth, where it could be passed on um, from generation to generation. And now they're struggling along with, you know, this, the, you know, the, uh, the communities of poor and communi uh, poor communities of color. Um, so it's broadened in a sense, is my point. Black Lives Matter is about obviously black lives, um, but also at the same time is that we're seeing this broadening of class inequality um and, and on top of that yeah yeah that's an important point and um and everybody you know should check out uh will max uh, pieces on this uh you can go to i think his yeah and his page uh at the in the department of history uh uh will mac w-i-l-l-m-a-c-k um uh wrote uh, a few pieces uh he writes for the gotham center for new york city history um, um, he wrote a piece on power and policing in New York City for Black Perspectives, uh, an award-winning blog uh, put out by the, uh, 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 the AAIHS, the African American Intellectual Historical Society, of which I am also a contributor. So shout out to the, to the wonderful to, to Black Perspectives. Uh, if you want to build your knowledge and information on this very quickly, they have some very uh, short and to the point, uh, punchy pieces uh, that are really actually not punchy at all. They're, they're quite rich, uh, but they're, they're blog size and they're really, really good for learning. Um, and then a piece on the building of Long Island race and capitalism. So that, you know, I think, I think uh, that, you know, that really kind of cap, cap, capstones what you were uh, putting in a discussion there. We have to have a realization of how we are, uh, the winds of capitalism inform us. And so it becomes an interesting question, at least to me, uh, in Long Island in terms of, you know, in, in, in a capitalist, a, an intensely capitalist and unapologetically market-driven capitalist state uh, or, or, or space, I mean to say, right? But one that doesn't play by the rules, right? You know, Milton Friedman, uh, an economist, you know, used to talk about all these kind of a lot of ideas that actually have been adopted. You know, you know, school vouchers and a lot of other things, um, things that he, you know, would kind of like explain, you know, OK, you know, keeping the lights on. That's the job of the state. Um, but then can we privatize? And so so that privatization thing, privatization of schools, privatizations of private prisons, um, all of these privatization sort of things that come in market driven spaces like New York City. Okay, uh, Wall Street, right? Remember that there's enslaved folks who are buried under the wall uh, by which Wall Street is named and was built by Black hands, right? And, and 
village in Manhattan, the black community that basically wiped out in a very, very early, remember the longer gentrification, uh, the word that, you know, comes from the word gentry, right? So this is a long tradition of, of, of the certain kind of people occupying a neighborhood, occupying is the wrong word, but living in a neighborhood, um, settling a neighborhood. I don't know if any of our listeners have ever seen, but there's a video and um, uh, in which it came out maybe a couple of summers ago during some of the tumult that we've seen. And it's basically a, a white gentleman, Caucasian gentleman, basically screaming at another uh, uh, a person uh, who's also white, you know, yelling and saying, I settled this for you, right? This is in Brooklyn. This was in downtown Brooklyn, I believe. I settled this for you. So one gentrifier yelling at another gentrifier um, using the words of imperialism and settlement and colonialism. And I'm like, can we meme this? Or is that, what is a meme? And how do you use it, right? So so I need a meme for this because I'll go back and try to find it and maybe our, our you know, maybe we can recover it. But, but it sort of says it all right there, you know, without apology. Um, 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 but, but again, kind of coming back, you know, to, to, to earth for a moment here. Um, <laughs> You know, you know, I think you make a good point, uh, uh, Will, and, 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 and it's, you know, it's, it's, it is critical to sort of understand the different, you know, even the, you know, to some extent, if we, as we study the labor movement, and as we, we look at labor, labor being very important in Long Island, one that was, I think, you know, locked out in many ways to Black apprentices, Black journeymen. If you can't be a journeyman, you can't get the job. You can't get the job. You know, you, you can't, can't get it without being in the union. And yet they don't allow African Americans in the union. So, 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 so people are, you know, become janitors or they become other things. But many of those janitors or, 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 or many women become domestics, right? Working in someone's home, very, you know, in that space during the time of day that a woman is serving as a domestic, you know, you might as well set the clock back to nine, you know, 1860, right? Uh, uh, because in, in, in the home, it's yes, ma'am. And at the store, it's walking behind and, and all that other stuff. Uh, look at the Bronx slave market piece that, that, that uh, really spoke to some of those uh, domestic, uh, domestic women who, but, but who did it and raised families and sent them to college and university. Uh, I wrote a piece, a book review that also appeared in Black Perspectives on um, a book uh, upending uh, the university, upending the Ivy League, excuse me, um, by uh, Stefan Bradley. And so, um, uh, me, Stefan Bradley. So, 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 um, you know, how are we to close? So, Will, I think, you know, that, that helps us a lot. And I thank you, you know, I encourage everyone to look at his work. And, and so, so, uh, Yesenia, talk to us about in a kind of a closing statement here, what what are we to take from this? What conclusions can we draw and what do we need to do better? Chiefly, I mean, you know, even before Keisha Blaine's book came out, before Ashley Farmer's book came out on another time period, uh, uh, there have been attempts to look at Amy Jack Garvey in essay form and maybe shorter books. Um, but before that, we really had no idea. These were hidden transcripts, literally marginalized and invisible uh, which is goes against the whole idea of, of, of talking about a gendered relational movement, one in which Black women did so much of the work and labor. 
Um, yeah, so I think what, what I gather from this conversation, what we can take away is that um, it does raise a lot of questions, even though we didn't, um, the feminist movement didn't start, or the first wave of the feminist movement didn't start at that time, um, or even the second wave, um, which is when black feminism was finally realized and integrated, especially in the academic space. Um, I think it just raises a lot of questions as to what could the space, what could, uh, whether it's African consciousness or Pan-Africanism, what could, what could it have been if it was integrated with uh, black women in mind and the work not taken as a secretarial job or whether it's the archivist or whatever, but what more could it have been? Um, and I also wanted to add um, something that I, when I was reading uh, Colin Legum's, if I'm saying his last name correctly, um, his piece when I wrote it down here, um, in the beginning of his piece where he in, integrates a lot of the um, poets, black, um, black men, um, poets that were talking about um, Africa and what they thought about uh, um, blackness and whether it, like, you know, the pride that they had in their color of their skin and who they are as people. Um, it reminded me of June Jordan's essay uh, slash poem uh, where she analyzed Phyllis Wheatley, who was the first black poet um, from the late 1700s. Yes. Um, and in the piece, I pulled it up briefly. She has a piece, Phyllis Wheatley in particular has a piece um, that June Jordan um, integrated into her piece about her. Um, and it's titled On Being Brought from Africa to America. And it says, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew, some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and joined the angelic train. And in, I'm sorry, my dog is in the background, but in, um, <laughs> in Jordan's uh, analysis of this particular um, part of Phyllis's poem, she just realized the, this independence, this individuality that Wheatley realized within her own writing. And there's a lot that we could say about, you know, whether, um, you know, when she says uh, Africa is pagan um, versus somewhere refined, um, she, we could mm. say how bizarre that is, but we also have to recognize, of course, what she was taught, which is European or Western um, thought and literature. And so, um, but it was interesting because she took what she's learned and turned it, or rather took like these traditions that we were forced to be, um, to reckon with and forced to learn and deal with. She took these and turned them around. And um, I think here she says, uh, once I redemption neither sought nor knew. And uh, Jordan says, as in once I existed beyond and without these terms under consideration, once I existed on other than your terms. And she says, but since we are talking your talk about good and evil, redemption and damnation, let me tell you something you had better understand. I am black as Cain and I may very well be an angel of the Lord. So take care not to offend the Lord. And I just thought that was a very beautiful analysis of um, the individuality and what we what we can do with what we know um, to inform African consciousness, what mm. work can be created from there on. And of course, taking uh, black women's work into consideration with all of that. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. For framing that for us and, and for that reminder and what a, yes, what a lyrically beautiful piece uh, as you sort of pair piece those things side by side. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley's, you know, kind of sensibilities of her time. And as the, as one of the first, you know, as a first, right. That contribution is sometimes undervalued and under, under, you know, misunderstood. Uh, as as sort of like an imitation, okay. Well, okay. So fine. It's no proof of anything, you know. Uh, uh, this this individual is able to, uh, uh, you know. And so so, but 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 I always thought that Phyllis Wheatley, you know, despite some of the uh, sort of you know points or or messages she ends up sending out with her poetry, intentionally, I believe, right? As the author, as the poetess. Uh, as, as was her right. So, so, so that's great. I mean, that's, that's critically critical to understand. Uh, there was a great deal. I don't think it's shocked anyone. There was a great deal of sexism. Um, there was a great deal of sort of silencing in the 1960s, like no black women spoke at the, at the March on Washington, right? Nobody. Um, and, and yet you got Polly Murray, who you mentioned, Vincent Frazier, you got who was critically important to the bringing about of Brown versus Board in a way that I don't think people quite understood. Uh, uh, Black Perspectives has a great piece on that as well. Um, uh, but you got voices, you got people that could have certainly, you know, spoke, um, you know, uh, uh, we're going to hear from a Fannie Lou Hamer in another context, right? But then she was turned off, literally silenced, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. Like by, 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 by LBJ, famously at the 64 convention. Um, so why do, you know, we keep having this thing of silencing women's voices and unfortunately this habit does get repeated. I hate to inform you in the black power context, um, and, and not fully dealt with, you know, Fidel Castro has this like famous thing, you know, when he talks about like, uh, or some of the males, you know, uh, male soldiers challenge him and say, you know, you, you gave, you gave a certain rank to so-and-so and she's a woman and, you know, Fidel like answers in, in his, you know, way that he often did. I'm not, you know, celebrating it or anything. It just happened, right? He says, you know, she's a better fighter than you, right? She's, you know, she can work. She works harder than you, right? So, so he really does, I don't, you know, I don't know if that was just an illustrative example, but the word is in the Moncada barracks and so on. And in that particular important non-alignment, right? Uh, footprint in the Western hemisphere, but we'll talk about that next year. 90 days, 90 uh, miles from uh, Florida coast, right? So, 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 um, and Angola connections are made, right? Remember it's Cuban doctors, right? You know, and Angolan doctors and uh, the non-aligned world, the, the so-called third world, right? We'll have to <clears throat> come back uh, as, as, as brother chase, excuse me, brother Frazier reminded us that was next week's reading. So <laughs> I think, I well, think I wanna... for those of you who, who, who peered ahead, but, but, but take us home, uh, uh, Vincent, um, what, wanna... what, what's the capstone in the last, you get the last, pretty oh. much the last word on this. Well, I'm, I'm glad Will's here. I like, I like to hear you will talk a lot. <laughs> you know, this stuff. I know we um, miss him. What I'll call, and... I'll close with the black, Church though, because I, I did a study of the uh, AME, AME Church and in, uh, in general, and how Richard Allen started the church along with Absalom Jones, and how they were building a church in Philadelphia, and they told him, you know, you can't pray here, you got to pray in the back, and they said we're gonna pray at one time, then we out of here, and they left, 
and build the AME Church, which is, which is one of the biggest churches in Queens now. It's one of the biggest employers in Queens today. What's the name of that church? That's the Al Greater Allen AME Church. Yes, I have heard of Greater Allen AME. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of the largest. Uh, it's one of the largest employees in Queens. Uh, the, the flakes, the flake, yeah, the Fl Floyd Flake family. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. A one-time congressman, uh, mm -hmm. a several-term congressman. Um, yeah. Back in the day, and um, and the family, the uh, uh, respect and honor due to uh, to, to Reverend Flake and his first lady, yeah. uh, Greater Allen AME great church uh that, that also operates a school there and so and so that you know i think that also i think i'm glad you mentioned that and brought us back to where we kind of started talking about the church right that's a space you know according to um you know stokely carmichael aka kwame Ture, uh, um and and charles hamilton's book there that talk about what black power can look like. And that, who is to argue that that is not an example of, of black power in a certain sense, right? Yeah. And we, you know, that we've been having this debate since that era, but people did build institutions, they built schools. There's such a school called Page Academy in Roxbury that was built on black power foundations mm -hmm. and ideas, and then eventually adopted the uh, ideas of uh, uh, Ron Karenga and, and the US organization. Uh, known as the Nguzo Saba and what is modern day Kwanzaa. Um, and so, you know, we got to have debates about cultural nationalism versus, you know, structural nationalism. We got to have questions about that. Um, and, and, and so there's, I, I think it's, there's many different ways to approach this thing called nation building. Remember Martin Delaney's, you know, I think that's one of our upcoming weeks, Imperium and Imperial. Right, a state within a state, a nation within a nation, right, and that has really been, you know, just kind of concluding this really wonderful discussion. I want to thank all of you um, for taking the time, you know, to to, well, <laughs> you know, to do class as and, and share our class with the rest of the world. Uh, this will be very instructive and a great library talk, I think, uh, because so many books were mentioned and so. Um, I hope that people will, you know, uh, uh, you know, follow up, rewind it, you know, get a pencil out and write some of those things down because they're all solid references. Uh, and we'll also share the references that we were discussing a little more closely tonight for those who may be interested. So there is a black nationalist tradition. After all, it lives on uh, in various you know, ways, whether they be more institutional uh, whether they be more reformist in nature, right? You know, not trying to like, this is not, you know, about like ending, ending, you know, everything as everyone knows it, uh, but, but more about, you know, okay, we have traditions like that and, and we'll, we'll debate about, you know, the degrees to which they're reformist. And is there a line and is, you know, does that cross it? So, so, so I want to thank everybody tonight uh, for uh, being part of this discussion um i know i learned a lot and you know just encourage everyone to to keep learning keep looking keep reading uh there's so much to find um you're mentioning will about kiangi amata taylor's book i want to encourage people to check that out um uh you can you can find wherever books are sold um and uh and the black jacobins clr james a classic 
that we need to keep coming back to as well. These these West Indian scholars, you know, who um, who help us to really, you know, whether they're in, their, in, in terms of leadership and, or in terms of, you know, their scholarly endeavors, help us to understand it. So I want to come back to, again, lastly, I'm glad you mentioned the um, Occupy movement, you know, Oscar Grant, you know, we, we got to get back to where this thing really started for those who were organizing the Gathering for Justice, Harry Belafonte's longtime efforts, you know, dealing with the school to prison pipeline. People thought we were people thought that people were working on stuff was kind of crazy during those years. Uh, but a lot of people, a lot of us knew that there was an unrest within the land. And those of us who dedicate, whether through the pen or through other ways, uh, this podcast has been uh, uh, one such way. And so just again, you know, thinking about someone like Richard B. Moore, who our library in the Africana Studies Department, where we have these classes is named after. Imagine us uh, sitting encumbered and surrounded by these beautiful books, so many of which have been mentioned tonight. Um, but, uh, you know, someone like Moore, he joins the African Blood Brotherhood. We need to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, we need to talk about Black nationalists in operation and mobilization and what that ends up looking like. But we still have trappings of Black nationalism today. Think of the the, the, the red, black, and green flag, right? That comes from the UNIA, the black power flag that is still used and is being used more often and you know, oftener and oftener as some people <laughs> say uh, lately comes from the UNIA. Think of the, the black national anthem, it has the word national in it, right? Yeah. We still sing a black national anthem even though uh, 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 we are Americans. And so, so all of those things are clues to help us to understand where we're going and if we continue we could probably think of others i think of colin kaepernick kneeling in protest to the american national anthem and so i want to thank all of you thank everybody i want to thank the brentwood public library again uh peter ward uh thanking uh, uh peter uh carmona and thanking all the staff that make this possible and the listeners uh, consider supporting a local library like the Brentwood Public Library or a library near you. Uh, we bring these kinds of discussions and I'm looking forward to sharing more of them uh, with all of you in the future. We thank you and uh, uh, thank all my guests, uh, Yesenia Torres, Willie Mack, and Vincent Fraser. And we bid you a good evening. Thank you. Thank you again to our guests, Zebulon, Yesenia, Willie, and Vincent. And thank you to you, the listener, for your continued support. Please check out the show's webpage on the Brentwood Public Library website or the Blueberry Podcasting website for show notes with links to many of the works discussed in today's podcast. Today's music is brought to you as always by Dr. Turtle. Check out his music over at freemusicarchive.org. <laughs>